Christ is risen. All right, excellent. Um, Josh wanted me to remind all of our visitors today, and I know we have several, um, if you would fill out one of these uh, communication cards and bring it to the back welcoming center, uh, we have a, a free gift for you, and we would just love to get to know you a little bit better. So if, if you could bring that card back at the end of the service, uh, there will be a special gift waiting there for you. If uh, you'll also take out um, your bulletins, I've got some notes um, that I would like to have for you today, some things that you can think about and ponder on in the week ahead um, as we take time to reflect on this most glorious of warnings, um, and that is Easter Sunday. And I've titled this message, The Three Days That Changed the World. And in preparing for this message, I spent a lot of time thinking about these three days, and I put them as beginning with the evening of the Last Supper, then progressing through the grisly crucifixion on Friday, and then concluding with the resurrection Sunday morning. And as I thought about and pondered this message, I came across this note from Tim Keller. Uh, he's a minister and an author who leads a church in New York City, and he put this on his Facebook site this week. He says this, and I think it's a great way for us to start this message this morning. He said that if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue, Keller writes, on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, to paraphrase that, it simply means this. We're here to celebrate today because we have confirmed and we do proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so I think it's very important for us to also understand what he said, what he did, and what he taught. I had a very important lesson that I learned back in 2008. Um, there was a day very similar to this. It was a beautiful spring morning. I think it was later in the year. It was some, sometime in the middle of May. And I had earned a, my, my graduate degree from the University of Sioux Falls. And one of the really great benefits of going to a Christian university is the type of tone and message that they give you throughout your training. And so I had finished this uh, degree in leadership um, and so there were people there who were going to be leaders in business and education and so on and so forth. And we were given two things that day. We were given a diploma and we were given a cloth with a cross on it, University of Sioux Falls, John 13. And I'll never forget President Mark Benedetto as he was giving the invocation that morning. He said to us, we are giving you a diploma for something that you did, but we're giving you this cloth to symbolize what we hope you're going to do. Because as leaders, he said, we are sending you out now into the world to lead people through love and through servanthood, just the way Jesus did. And I thought that was such a powerful message, and it brings such a powerful memory to me about what we're called to do as Christ followers here on this earth. And so when we start today, when we, as we start this morning's message, I want to take a look at the books of both John and Luke. And we're going to start with the Passover meal. And we're also going to take a look at what's said and what's done there. And then we're going to move on into these three days that are going to take place. And we're going to wrap it back to the simple proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus dies for our sins. And Jesus conquers death for us all. And he's offering an invitation to each one of us to follow him. So that's where we're heading 
as we go along through this message here this morning. So we're going to pick up where I left off a couple of weeks ago. We established that the week before, Jesus has come close to Jerusalem, and that each day he's been making several trips in and out of Jerusalem over the course of this holy week. And he's continuing to draw crowds every single place that he goes. He's not only drawing the crowds of people who are anxious to hear him, but he's also drawing the anger and the ire of the Jewish leaders of the temple, of many of the Roman officials who are wondering what kind of an insurrection is going on in this territory. And so we're going to pick up this narrative now on Thursday, the Passover feast, the Last Supper, as Scripture teaches us. And it's the beginning of the three days that are going to change the world. Now, I want to give some important context to the Last Supper before we get into what Jesus says and does there. One of the most important parts for every Jewish family at this time in preparing for the Passover is the sacrifice of a lamb. Sometimes it was a goat, but most of the time it was a lamb, the most unblemished lamb that the family could find. And so during this day and in, in, in the week preparing to it, Jesus, or excuse me, Jewish families took a one-year-old lamb to the temple during this week, and a Levite would butcher it, hang its fleece, and prepare it by removing all the innards, getting it all prepared. And then the family would take what was left home, the meat, the carcass, and they would go home, and that night they would prepare a special meal out of it. This was a sacrifice to God, and it was a communal time for the family. And so as we think about this, we think about a natural question that would be asked in the family. Those who took the lamb in were part of the sacrifice, But what about the people in the family who were not there? What about the people in the family who were partaking in the meal? And it was believed that the people who joined in the meal would then also get to join in the benefits of the sacrificial lamb. And that's going to be an important concept as we talk about Jesus in this Last Supper. On a day when lambs are being sacrificed, it's going to be Jesus who says, I too shall be sacrificed. And so I want to take a look, first of all, at John 13, 12 through 17. Something very, very important is happening here. It's the first of some important lessons that we want to understand about what Jesus is teaching us to do with our lives. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to this place. Do you understand what I have just done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed. Key word here. You will be blessed if you do them. You see what's happening here? Just before Jesus makes this proclamation, Peter says to him, Lord, I'm not qualified to wash your feet. This is a slave's job. You're our Messiah. We should be washing your feet. They don't understand this. And Jesus is very clear, no. Part of your mission, part of your leadership, part of your example is to be 
servants. Washing each other's feet is symbolic of lives lived in servanthood. And that's something we have to understand. That when we pick up our cross, when we follow Christ, we are to live lives in servanthood. Just like Jesus teaches here at the Last Supper. Now he does something else that's quite unexpected during this Passover meal. And we find that in Luke chapter 22, 17 through 20. It's at this time when communion takes place. And I want you to keep in mind the idea of the Passover meal and everybody participating, getting the benefits of that sacrificed lamb by participating in the meal, eating that lamb. Jesus says, or excuse me, we learn in Luke, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is why communion is such a symbolic and important time in the life of a church, because it gives us an opportunity to partake in the supper, the broken body of Jesus. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we learn from this Last Supper, from this feast, that number one, as Christ followers, we are to live lives of servanthood. The second thing we learn through this discussion with his disciples is that Jesus offers an invitation to a new covenant. He offers an invitation to those sitting at that table that night to be part of him. And this has serious implications for all of us today. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, I am going to be sacrificed On a day when all of these lambs are being sacrificed, everyone would have gotten the image who was sitting at that table. Jesus says, I too am soon going to be sacrificed, and I am inviting you to join me at this altar. Jesus makes two incredibly important statements this evening, the first of these three days. He makes the claim that he is the only way to the Father. If you go a little bit further in John 14, 6, Jesus says, and we should imprint this inside of our hearts, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an extraordinary statement when you think about it, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You come to the Father through me. The cross is the center of who we are. Secondly, and he makes this claim as well, through the washing of the feet, if you follow me, you essentially, I'm kind of paraphrasing in my words here, but if you were to follow me, you must surrender yourself. You must live in humility and you must live in servanthood. And in one of his final acts, one of his final instructions that he gives to his disciples is the example of washing their feet. What a powerful visual lesson that is. Because I can tell you this, after spending a day in sandals, walking around on the dusty roads of Jerusalem, foot washing was not the most appealing thing to do. 
And that's why it was slaves' work to do it. It is degrading to wash somebody's feet in this context, and yet Jesus is willing to wash the feet of every one of his disciples. I go back to that original challenge. If he did indeed rise from the dead, then what he said and what he did matters. And we would be wise to consider this blueprint for the way we conduct ourselves and for the way that we live every single day. Which brings us to Friday. Now the book of John tells us that sometime very late on Thursday evening and into Friday morning, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes there to pray. And it is there that he is arrested. And very quickly he is taken to the Jewish high priest of the time in that place, a man by the name of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas interrogates him throughout the wee hours of Friday morning. And Caiaphas comes to the conclusion that Jesus has committed a capital offense. Now, for those of us living in the American justice system, we know that we have a Bill of Rights. What we're going to see in terms of how Jesus is treated and how he is handled throughout this entire coming day, there's there's no consideration for his rights. There's no consideration for fairness. Every single one of these moments is going to just reek of, we got to get this guy. And it starts with Caiaphas. What's the offense that Jesus is accused of? He is accused of so aligning himself with God that he claims to be the son of God. And to Caiaphas, this is blasphemy. But Caiaphas also knows what's been going on this whole week and the crowds that have been attracted to Jesus, and he is clearly a threat. And so Caiaphas calls members of the Sanhedrin court together that morning, and they also determine that this is an offense for which Jesus must die. But there's one problem, and here's where Pontius Pilate is going to come into play. You've all heard of Pontius Pilate. See, Caiaphas doesn't have the ability to kill Jesus himself. He doesn't have that authority. Only the Roman government does. And so Jesus is then presented to Pontius Pilate. And after a long conversation... Pontius Pilate caves as well. And it's quite, quite possible that Pontius Pilate wanted this to happen so he could simply not have an insurrection in the territory that he was governing so he wouldn't get him trouble himself. We can debate why Pontius Pilate came to his decision all we want. The fact is, Pilate determines that Jesus must die. And so with that decree made, Jesus is tortured throughout most of the day Friday. Now, we could spend a whole sermon or a whole message talking about the gruesomeness of Roman crucifixion. I remember when I was a young boy, uh, uh, Steve Siemens used to come every once in a while from Iowa Christian College, and he gave a moving and powerful demonstration about the horrors of Roman crucifixion, from the size of the nails to the whippings to the crown of thorns, the beatings that Jesus endured. But I can simply say this, it's grisly business. And Jesus endured a kind of pain that none of us can possibly fathom. And this was so brutal because it was meant to be a form of public propaganda on behalf of the Roman government. The idea was that if somebody posed such a threat to their power, they would make an example of them by beating them nearly to death, hoisting them up on this cross on a hill just outside of the city so that anyone who would see them up there suffering and dying would know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. It would have been very clear to any Christ follower, any disciple at the time, that when Jesus was hanging on that cross, the message was clear. You follow him, 
here's where you're going to head next. It's public propaganda. And when Jesus is on the cross, and this is one of the most powerful and one of the most emotional moments in all of Scripture, when he's on the cross, the the Gospels account for him uttering seven sentences throughout the Gospels. As passers-by, as Jewish leaders and Roman officials are mocking him and hurling insults at him and spitting at him, asking him why he can't come down and save himself, Jesus utters these words. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. I want to say that again. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. You see, all through Jesus' ministry, all through his time and life on this earth, he is teaching and preaching to turn the other cheek. He is teaching and preaching to love your enemies, to pray for them. And in the moment of his most anguish, in the moment of his most suffering, in the moment of his most humiliation, he continues practicing what he constantly teaches. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so there are implications for the cross. There are implications for Friday because we ask ourselves, why did Jesus have to die this way? And the answer is simple. And it's the most straightforward part of the gospel. You see, our sinfulness, every one of us, you and me, our sinfulness separates us from God's holiness. And the only way to bridge that divide was the cross. And as Christ followers, the cross, I'll say it again, is the center of who we are. And here is what we have to take from this Easter message. Jesus died for everyone. He died for you. He died for me. And yes, he died for all the people that we don't necessarily get along with all the time. He dies for everyone. And he died for everyone. And everyone has the invitation to follow him. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3.16 says it best. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And here's the most important implication of the cross. Here's the most important implication to me, one of the most important lessons that comes from this in all of these three days. God's most cherished creation is people. (laughs) They are what's most cherished to him in all of his creation are you and me, the people. And we have to take this very seriously. If he rose from the dead, then what he taught And what he did matters. And so now we move to Sunday. His body had been removed from the cross because of the Sabbath was coming. There had to be a delay in taking care of some of these details. And many times women carried on this role of of, of taking care of deceased bodies. And so he's wrapped in a shroud. He's very hastily put in a tomb that was owned by a man named Joseph, Joseph. And then we wait a day. And it's when Mary and others go back to take care of him on Sunday morning, they return to the tomb, and they are shocked to find his burial wrappings. I want to take you to Matthew 28, verses 5 through 7. They come across an angel, 
when they see the shock of Jesus' body missing. And the angel says to these women, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. And just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Jesus is risen. And in the course of the days ahead, there are going to be over a hundred eyewitnesses who are going to share in that glory. And so now we go back to the promise of that Last Supper, the promise of communion when Jesus talks about his broken body and his spilled blood. And the implication is this. If death cannot defeat him, I want you to really hold on to this. If death could not defeat Jesus, it also cannot defeat those who are attached to him. We celebrate today because death is overcome. Death is overcome. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. He is risen. <laughs> he is risen indeed. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise for each of us. But I want to share one last moment here. And the question that comes with it is simply this. What does a surrendered life to Jesus look like? I want to take you back a ways to John chapter 8. This is a very, very famous scene in the Bible. Some members of the Pharisees have brought a woman before Jesus who has been caught in the act of adultery. And in these times especially, this is an act that is worthy of stoning to death. And so the Pharisees are going to give Jesus a little bit of a test here. They bring the woman forward. You can imagine the tension that is being built. You can almost imagine the joy that some of these guys are feeling about having a chance to stone this poor woman to death. And if you remember at that time, these Pharisees, one of them asks Jesus, what do you think should be done? And there's that moment in chapter 8 of John where Jesus sort of stoops down. It looks like he's writing something into the ground. And Jesus stands up. And what does he say to these Pharisees? The first one of you who is without sin may cast the first stone. And they all look at each other. They all realize that none of them is qualified to carry this out. And they slowly disperse. But I want to share with you the key verse to me in this passage. I want you to look at verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. I want you to hold on to that phrase, until only Jesus was left, because you know what? He was the one person who was sinless and was qualified to carry out the punishment of that woman. Does he do that? With his power... <laughs> With his perfection, look at how he responds to her. He simply says this. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. And then he says this. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. Powerful. 
If you're hearing this gospel message for the first time this morning, you are offered the invitation of grace. The grace that was spilled on the cross of Calvary. The grace that was finished in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me give you this assurance. Let me give you this hope. Nothing you've done is beyond the saving grace that Jesus gives. But you must decide to turn to him and turn away from your sin. His grace is sufficient for you and it's sufficient for me. But like all gifts, grace must be willingly accepted. Now, if you've heard the good news and you have accepted this truth, then this morning, I hope, is a time for you to reconnect yourself to this unbelievable truth that death is swallowed up in victory on Easter Sunday. I want to take you through one more tour of the gospel accounts of that holy week when Jesus was in Jerusalem that leads to this first Easter morning. You see, earlier in the week, Jesus was surrounded by crowds every day that he came to Jerusalem. And so every day, if you can imagine him being inside the temple or in the temple garden, people are just packing and flocking around him, and they're hanging on his every word. And the authorities in the temple are obviously getting very concerned, and they continue to test him, and they continue to get very confrontational with him. And here's what I want to note as you look through the scripture and see these accounts. With people who didn't know him, Jesus is always compassionate. Notice that. Everyone who comes to him, who doesn't know him, he shows compassion. But for the leaders of the time, who were leading people astray, who were serving in ways that were self-serving, he's very confrontational. And he tests them right back. And there is one moment of testing where a member of the, of the establishment says to him, what is the most important law to follow? Out of all of God's laws, what are mo- what's the most important thing that we must do? And just as a point of record, do you know that they had kept up to 613 specific rules and laws that had to be kept at the time? That's a huge book. You think a, a handbook at a school is bad. 613 laws. Where do we even begin, Right? So they want to test him. What's most important? What's the most important thing that you and I and we all need to do? And Jesus goes right away to Deuteronomy 6. And in this exchange, he says, the most important law to follow is love your God with your entire heart, your entire soul, and all of your strength. Well, that seems to add up to what everyone else is thinking. Okay, good enough. But Jesus isn't done. That's only the first half of the equation. Jesus then says, love your neighbor as yourself. Greater than all sacrifices that are offered at the temple is this one key truth. You are to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And with that equal amount of love, you are to love others. You are to love your neighbor. And that must come through. You see, what God expects from us is very quite uncomplicated. We are to love God, and we are to love people. And these were some of the last words that he told the world. And they are as true for the people 2,000 years ago who heard that message for the first time from him as they are to us today. If this gets complicated, quite honestly, I think it's because we complicate it. We are to love God with all our heart, our soul, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor in the same way. 
And so I leave you with this challenge here on Easter morning, and I hope you can use the notes that have been put together just to help kind of tie up some verses and help you reflect and think about this special day. I hope you take time around your dinner tables today. I hope you take time in prayer and in quiet reflection to think about the implications of the cross, the resurrection, and the teaching of these three days. And I simply ask you these three questions. Do you, if you were to just search your soul right now, do you love God with all your heart? Do you love your neighbor? Do you truly love people that God puts in your life? And are you willing to give your life to surrender to Christ? And are you willing to give it to serve your workplace and to serve the world and the community and the neighborhood in which you are a part of? Are you willing to serve until the day he calls you home? You see, I picture a day where every Christ follower wholeheartedly shows this example to the world. And I want to end with what's going to be sort of like a prayer. And I'm going to ask Josh to just come up and play as we finish our thoughts here. But because of Easter, because of the cross, because of Christ's resurrection, we have eternal life when we surrender our sin, when we surrender our very selves to him. It's a gift of grace, but we have to open it. It's a gift of grace, but we have to come with obedience. But it's a gift that's available to us all. And we would do well to think of those who enjoy life in eternity right now with Jesus' glory. You see, every funeral of every Christ follower that we attend, it comes back to Easter. Every single one of them to the miracle of love that Jesus performed on the cross so that death could be conquered and we could be with him for eternity. And we would do well to think of those who don't know Jesus at this time, who desperately need to hear this good news, how they can turn from their sin through the power of Christ, through obedience, they can follow and they can have that assurance. And we would do well to think about ourselves, all of us who belong to him, that when we die, we will also see him in his glory for all eternity. This is the good news. The cross is the center of who we are. Christ is risen. Amen and hallelujah.